This is what the word says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without future Yet in the town of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by many people and animals, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. And this place desolate and without people or animals, in all its towers, yeah, in all its towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin and the villages around Jerusalem, and so again, pass under the hands of the The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's lawn. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will be saved. This is the name. By which it will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. This is the word. Thank you, Marie. If you don't have your own Bible, you can find Jeremiah chapter 33 on page. 646 and 647 is where we start this morning. Thank you. Let's pause and pray before we get into this passage. Lord, Jesus, would you be our teacher this morning as we sit at the feet, listen to your word, and hear this wonderful prophecy that was given about you? Give us hope today as we. And we feast on your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, picture one of those Western movies where the uh, main character rides his horse into a town down the main street, and there's just an eerie stillness over everything. The saloon door blows open and shut, and a tumbleweed rolls across the dirt. And there's nothing, there's no sounds, there's no, there's no human activity, it's just a ghost town. But maybe if, if your, your style is more of the you know, post-apocalyptic movie, zombie movie or something, he said his favorite show is, well, never mind. <laughs> I didn't ask him permission to share this. You know, those movies where, where New York City is like this desolate wasteland and there's no lights on in the buildings and the street lights are, are out and there's cars abandoned on the street. And whenever you see a scene like that, you know 
that something terribly wrong has happened. Something has gone terribly wrong. That's exactly the situation Jeremiah was talking about in Jeremiah 33, where Jerusalem was turning into a ghost town. Uh, the Babylonian army had already invaded Judah a couple times and taken away uh, thousands of residents to deport them to Babylon. And now the Babylonian army was back at their doorstep, building siege ramps to, to invade and demolish the city of Jerusalem. Um, Jeremiah had been warning his people, listen, judgment is coming. Repent, turn back to the Lord. But his people didn't listen. In fact, King Zedekiah uh, didn't like this message of judgment, so he put Jeremiah in prison. And Jeremiah sits in prison as this word is spoken to him by the Lord. Here's what Jeremiah was realizing. Soon, Jerusalem was going to be a ghost town. No sounds of children playing. No, you know, market buying and selling, no shepherds at work in the pastures around the land, no one worshiping at the temple, just desolate, just a ghost town. Something had gone terribly wrong, namely that God's people had forsaken them, and so this judgment had come. And the same is true in the world today. I'm not saying that God's judgment is any particular thing in the world today, but people forsake God. People live, try to live without God. And whenever that happens, what comes is desolation. We create ghost towns by our sin, by our rebellion. Everywhere you look, there are signs that something has gone terribly wrong. There are desolate relationships, desolate communities, desolate souls and bodies, the environment. I was listening to the BBC News on the radio this week, and in Afghanistan right now, the economy has totally crashed. So people are starving. People can't heat their homes. The markets in the cities are full of sellers with no one to buy food. How does that happen? Because of warfare and evil human leadership, sin. Or think about closer to home here in Vermont. Vermont is one of, well, Vermont and West Virginia saw the greatest increase in overdose deaths last year. What, why does it happen? Because of broken relationships and sin people living without God. Some of you have known personally the desolation that causes the families when that happens. That should grieve us, as it did grieve Jeremiah when he saw his beloved city turning into a desolate waste. And I, I want to say that the, the desolation caused by sin gets even closer to home because we all feel it inside of us, right? If you've ever buried a loved one, if you've ever had a broken relationship, or had your, felt your body ravaged by disease, if you've ever been in a dark valley of the soul, you know what desolation feels like. 
And that's why these words in Jeremiah are so powerful for us today. Because God speaks into this desolate situation. He speaks word of restoration, words of hope, words of comfort. He makes this great and glorious announcement that restoration was coming, was on the way. And whatever desolation is in your life or whatever you see in the world that grieves you, you can hang on to these words of hope. In fact, the hope we have is even brighter and clearer than the hope that Jeremiah had. So here's what I, what I want to do with this text. is say, first, look at what God promised. And second, how it would happen. And then third and finally, what it means for us today. So let's see what God promised. And I want to read this again, starting in verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited neither by people nor animals, there will once there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for he is good, his love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. Just allow yourself to picture and to even hear the transformation that Jeremiah is describing here. From the, the eerie silence of a ghost town to the sounds of, of laughter and of music and of people celebrating and of, of people giving wedding toasts and of people worshiping the Lord. What an amazing transformation. That, that street that once was uninhabited, it will be filled with, with neighbors talking and celebrating together. But he goes on. Uh, verse 12, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns, there will again be pastures or shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, flocks again will pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel. He's saying here that abandoned villages will be repopulated with people and animals. Life will happen here again, right? The Lord uses this image of a shepherd counting his sheep because sheep were such an important sign of life and such an important part of their economy. How uh, they were used uh, you know, wool for fabric, for, for yarn and fabric, and um, milk for making cheese and meat for eating, and lambs for sacrifices at the temple. And so saying that the pastures will be filled with sheep and the shepherd will once again count the sheep is like saying all will be well again in the world. Things will be the way they should be. 
What is he talking about when he says, I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Judah? Well, God promised his people before they went into exile that once again, they would come back. They would be restored to their, their land. And this indeed happened. A number of the exiles were sent back 70 years after leaving, and they began to rebuild their lives and rebuild their towns and even rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And this is a message of profound hope for Jeremiah, but, but also for us. Because what this says about God is that God speaks words of restoration into our desolation, into our hopeless places. Have you ever been in a hopeless place, in a desolate place, whether it was losing a loved one or going through a season of depression or a season of unfulfilled longing or, uh, you know, the ending of a relationship. In times like that, when there's no reason you can think of to be optimistic, God gives you hope. Hope is not simply hoping things will turn out good. Hope is not an optimism. Hope is choosing to defy against the darkness and say, I believe that God's promise is true. I believe that restoration is coming, even though I can't see it now. God, God was saying to Jeremiah, look, I know that right now Judah is being destroyed and life as we know it, as life as you know it, is coming to an end and yet there will be a day of restoration. That can be hard to believe when all you see around you is rubble and desolation and darkness. But hope is choosing to believe that God is true, that God's word is true. Now, as we get into the Advent season, what are the things in your world, in your life, that cause you to lose hope? I want you to be thinking about that. And I want to urge you on the authority of God's word to choose hope. To choose hope. To defy the darkness, defy the hopelessness and choose to believe what God says. That there is a day of restoration, a day of, of healing. There is hope. Well, let's go back to Jeremiah's prophecy where we see in verses 15 and 16 how this restoration will happen. In those, uh, in those days and at that time, this is the Lord speaking, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. There will once again be a king on the throne, Jeremiah. A king who does what is right. That's what God is telling him. That's what God promises. Ju Judah's current king, Zedekiah, was, was um, a total failure. 
Uh, he had totally rebelled against God. But God promises that one day Judah will once again have a righteous king, a good king. Not like all the others before, most of the others before, who had just driven the nation into the ground, but a king who does what is right and just. Um, who leads people in God's ways, who protects them. A lot of the desolation caused in our world is through is through wicked leadership in churches, in homes, in nations, in communities. Leaders who lead people astray. But all that's going to change because God says this righteous king is coming who will rule the land and do what is just and right. Now, the, there's important, an important term here which says, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. What does that mean? Well, God had promised King David that a king would always uh, sit on the throne from his line, from his family. And the word branch in Hebrew is kind of a term that means a legitimate heir, a legitimate descendant. So there will be, as God promised, a descendant of David on the throne who does what is right. Now about 70 years after this, this prophecy was partially fulfilled. Has anyone heard of a guy named Zerubbabel? Or Zerubbabel. It's a mouthful. He was... um, He was born in Babylon with the exiles, a descendant of David. And he came back to the land with the the first uh, group that returned. And he was the governor of Judah as the temple was rebuilt and as the community was reestablished. And he was a good leader. He did what was best and right. But after he died, other leaders came and things again fell into um, turmoil. And by the time... We get to the New Testament. Judah is not ruled by a a good king from David's line. So this can't ultimately be referring to Zerubbabel. And of course, the portrait that Jeremiah is painting, you know where this is going, is of Jesus, the true righteous king, the one who does, who always does what is just, what is right. He was the king that not only Judah needed, but the whole world needs. Right? The good king, the righteous king. In the last line of verse 16, look at the name that the, the city of Jerusalem is given. It's the name by which it will be called, it meaning the city, the Lord our righteous Savior. Now that seems kind of weird to name a place, the Lord, our righteous Savior. But if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you find God naming all kinds of things um, in ways that would be strange to us. And yet, the names have great significance, some like prophetic significance. Um, and it, And this is the Lord, our righteous Savior. Other translations might say, the Lord has provided us with justice. Righteousness and justice are, are the same word in Hebrew. They both refer to doing what is right. But track with me here for a minute. 
This is important. Why did Jerusalem turn into a ghost town? Why was it laid waste? Because people were unjust and unrighteous. They turned away from God. They did what was evil in God's eyes. Right? And with that, they brought desolation. Our world today is no different. There's unrighteousness and injustice everywhere. Wherever the power of sin is at work, there's desolation. And, let's be honest, we have a hand in that with our own actions. But the miracle of the gospel is that Jesus, the true king, brings God's own righteousness to us. Right? He does, as we saw a few weeks ago, he, he writes God's law on our hearts and internalizes it so that we want to do what is just and right. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He not only reigns in, in justice and in righteousness, but he empowers us to be people who do the same, who live in justice and righteousness. Now, knowing all that, I want to... Close and bring this together by talking about what do we do? What does that mean for us today? Well, first of all, picture, picture a timeline in front of me here. Back here, 600 years before Jesus, is Jeremiah. He's prophesying. And then comes Jesus the true and just king. And yet when he came, he didn't seem like a king, did he? Because he was killed. He was crucified. He, he died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. And now here's us 2,000 years later, and we are waiting for Jesus to come back. When he will come back as the true king the world needs when he will rule over everything, over a renewed creation in righteousness and justice, and everything will be as it should be. Death itself will be reversed and redeemed. Sin will be eradicated. So that's the day that we are looking toward and waiting for, and that's the day Jeremiah was looking toward, ultimately, when Jesus will come back. Titus, in the New Testament, Titus 2.14 says, We wait for the blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own. That's why we can look, we can live in a desolate world and not despair. Because we know that Jesus is coming back. That's our ultimate hope. But now we're in this in-between time. And so does this have anything to say to us for the here and now? Yes. Yes. It does. If you are a Christian, then everywhere you go, you are a beacon of hope in a desolate, hopeless world. That is this whole project that God is doing in the redemption of the world and creating people who are his own and, and bringing people into the kingdom of God to live under his lordship here and now. 
not just to wait for Jesus to come back, but to live under the just and righteous leadership of Jesus right now. And part of that means being people of hope. People who are beacons, outposts of hope. Whenever a person or a community or a relationship or a marriage comes under the lordship of Jesus, what happens? It comes to life. It's restored. Desolate places are filled with life. Conflicts cease. Marriages heal. Lives are reordered. Hopeless people have hope. Have you experienced that or seen that in others? I sure have. That's what Jesus does here and now. We have a book that we read with our kids sometimes called Miracle Man, which is an interpretation of the gospel story. Is this going to work here? There we go. And I, the really cool thing about this book is the illustrations because the way he... He shows visually the hope and redemption that Jesus brings is just, is just amazing. So I just want to show you a few of the pictures in this book. So here's where it starts with the world being a desolate and, and thirsty place. And then Jesus comes. And it says his words make things alive. You can see how everywhere he walks, flowers bloom in this desolate world. He's calling the disciples to himself to follow him. Here he's touching and healing the leper. You can see the, the sickness and the evil fleeing from him. And again, the, just the, the flowers growing in his footsteps. He's healing the paralytic. And of course... We know how the story went in Jesus' first coming. He was betrayed. And crucified. It says it seems like the miracles had come to an end. The gospel story has that point which it seems like the, 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 the most hopeless point of the of entire the entire history of the world. Jesus has come, God in the flesh, to redeem us and restore us. And what did we do? We killed him. And the disciples were hopeless and shattered and desolate. This was not the king they thought he was going to be. And then we know how the story ends. With the resurrection, with the, the greatest source of hope the world's ever known and still knows. 
And there's Jesus on the other side of the tomb bringing life to those who trust in him. Friends, that is your, that is your story. That, that is the story that you live with that gives you hope. And as a follower of Jesus here and now, wherever you go, flowers bloom in your footsteps. You bring life. You bring hope to those around you. As God has filled you with hope and continues to fill you with hope, you radiate that to others. So maybe this time tomorrow you will be at a doctor's appointment and you can bring hope with your presence in that uh, office where there's people suffering. Maybe this time tomorrow you'll be at work. You'll be you know, uh, plowing through a mountain of, of paperwork or tasks and you bring hope by the poise that you have in the midst of hard work. Maybe this time tomorrow you'll be with your kids or doing errands or uh, visiting friends or at your home by yourself and you bring hope by just what you have your heart set on and your mind set on during those tasks, which is Jesus and the hope that he brings. So, friends, there's hope for ghost towns, there's hope for us, there's hope for this world. And I want you to know that Jesus brings you hope. Let's pray. Lord, we choose to hope in you. Each one of us here today is facing things in life that that could seem hopeless or that have made us despair or made us feel desolate. We choose now to hope in you despite those things. We choose to remember um, Jesus' first coming, his his death uh, to pay for our sins and give us his righteousness and his resurrection to give us eternal hope. And Lord, we pray that that we would indeed um, be radioactive with hope as we go about our lives in this world this week. Equip us to do that. We don't have it intrinsically in ourselves. We need it from you. And Lord, I just pray for special moments this week when each of us can feel your hope, uh, choose your hope, and offer your hope to others. We pray this in Jesus' name, the Lord of hope. Amen.